0: Kids, come on up to the front if there's any other kids here. Go ahead and put that back. So we have three. Hmm, this is going to be interesting. I was thinking we would have three, four, or five. Are there a couple more? Ah. We'll figure this out. We'll figure this out. How long of a bathroom trip is it going to be? Okay, don't, no, no, don't rush them. I obviously want everything to work out. (laughs) But Mr. Shane had asked me last week if we could play a game. And so I had prepared a game, but I needed two teams. So let's see how this is going to work. Hmm. No, Cheyenne's not Cheyenne's. Okay, this is what we're going to do. You're going to move over here. Now you're going to stay here. So you guys are on a team and you guys are on a team. Okay. What are these? Hey. These are band-aids. Now, if you were a doctor or a nurse. Sorry, Elsie, I'm going to mess up your display here. If you were a doctor or a nurse and somebody came to you and they had cuts all on their arms What would you do? First, you'd have to, you would help them exactly. And the first thing you'd have to do is you would have to, um, you'd have to wash their arms to make sure that they were clean. And then after that, you might put on some antiseptic on the different wounds that they had. And then after that, you would put a bandage on. Why would you put a bandage on? So it stays clean. Or maybe if it has a little bit of blood on it, there, it can, this would help the blood to catch the blood, or might, it might help to administer the medicine that you're putting on it. So one, two, three, four. You have one? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Look at that perfectly. One, two, three, four, five. There are five for you. That's your team. Five for you. Now. How many of you guys have actually ever put a Band-Aid on? You have? You have. Do not do this yet. I'm gonna show you, okay? The way the Band-Aid package is, is that it has an, a, a little thing at the front, I mean at the top here, and it becomes actually two pieces of paper, see? And then you pull it like that, and then you get the Band-Aid out and, Then you take off the little slick part and you take off the other slick part and now you have two sticky pieces with the pad in between and then you put it on and push it down and it sticks. Okay? Right. Now, this is the game we're going to play. You guys are the nurses. You guys have a patient. I'm the patient. I have cuts on my arm. This team goes over there. You guys go over there. This team goes over there. And you guys, I don't care who does what, but you have five Band-Aids, each of you, that have to go on my arms. And each one of you has to at least do one Band-Aid, okay? So that you can do four and one, or you can do three and two. I don't care how you do it. But all five Band-Aids have to be on. And I have to have some judges to see who's the first, who finishes first. Now, there is absolutely no prize. So don't get upset when you don't win anything at the end. This is just, yay, we won. And then go sit down. Okay, so are you ready? Now, only one person at a time from each team can come up and put on a Band-Aid. Okay? So you guys decide your strategy. How are you going to do it? What are you guys going to do? Talk about what you're going to do so that you guys know. Are you guys ready? Do I have judges that are watching? Yeah. All right. On your mark. Get set. Go. That's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. I thought I was going to get pounded. They're being very nice. Oh, you have to go back now. Go back. Let your other partner come up. That was one. We've got four more. Do it up where the colors are. Well, that one's hard, isn't it? looks like it's... You can also tear... Give him a better one. Because he's having trouble with... There you go. There you go. Charlene's going to kill us. (laughs) There you go, Shane. Good job, man. I was supposed to have a trash can up here. I got distracted. Okay, that's two on this side and two on this. Oh, three on this side. Uh Uh-oh, hurry up. Four on this side. Uh, uh, That's okay. Okay. Five on this. Oops, not down. Five on this side. And four. Okay, one more, Shane. Come on up. Finish it up. This is going to hurt because there's hair.
1: I didn't think that part of it through either.
0: I didn't put a trash can. I got hair on my arms. It's going to be pulled off in a little bit. Good job. Good job. Thank you. All right. You guys go ahead and take a seat. Go ahead and take a seat. I I have been asked to be the camp medic at Camp Maranatha for the kids camp this year. And so this is one of the tools that I have to bring. Bandage is lots of the things that I have to bring. But this is also one of the tools that I have to bring. Have you guys ever seen one of these before? Do you know what this is called? Stethoscope. What is a stethoscope used for? It's what? Check your heartbeat. heartbeat. But what else can it be used for? Do you know? You can use it to listen to a pulse. And when you listen to a pulse, it helps you to understand what the person's blood pressure is. And if a person has high blood pressure... Or low blood pressure, that could be very dangerous. This is another part of the of the trade that you have to know how to use when you're a nurse or a doctor or a medical person. And this is called, do you know what it's called? Yeah. What? I actually, I actually forgot. No, that's not the name of it. I actually Some people call it a blood pressure cuff. But it's not a blood pressure cuff. It's a sphygomanometer. <laughs> Can you say that word? Sphygomanometer. spy spy spy. SF SFY. Spy Spigo Manometer. Sci- Psycho- Psycho- it says it right there. Sphygomanometer. See? That's the word right there. See it? Can you read it? it Sphygomanometer. They call it a blood pressure cuff. But what it is, let me show you. See the arrows on it? It says left arm, you always put it over the, the artery on the left arm, or if it's on the right arm, you always put it over here on the, on the artery and that's why the different arrows. And then there's a little wheel here. See this wheel? Yeah. If I tighten it all the way down, it forces the air to go up into the blood pressure cuff and if I loosen it, then it lets the air out and the air comes out the bottom of this hole. See, so watch. Watch what's happening to the blood pressure cuff because I've got it on my arm. I've tightened down the knob. Now watch, watch the blood pressure cuff as I squeeze the bulb. See, it's getting bigger. And look at the gauge. It's like a balloon, exactly. And see the the gauge? It's getting tighter and tighter. Ow! And it's not letting go. There's a lot of pressure there right now until I turn this knob. Watch the needle when I turn the knob. And the way this works is, as you're slowly letting the pressure down, you're also listening with the stethoscope. And as you, as the pressure goes down, you begin to hear the beat. And then once the pressure gets low enough, then you stop hearing the beat and you're watching to see what number it was at the top when you first heard the beat and what number it was at the bottom when you stopped hearing the beat. And that's the blood pressure. That's how doctors and nurses know if you're sick or not, or if you have a problem with your heart or with your circulatory system. And this is I used to be I used to be an emergency medical technician. I used to go on ambulances when people had emergencies and I would do this kind of stuff. I would help people. I would do first aid or I would do. I remember one time we had a lady who um, she had had a stroke and she had passed out. But she had, had vomited, and so we had to actually get a, some suction and suction out the vomit so that she could breathe. I knew another guy that he had um, diabetes, and he had passed out because of his diabetes. And we, we had to help him get to the hospital so the doctors could get his, medica- his, his medicine right. We had an older lady one time. She fell, and she broke her hip. And we had to help her carefully get her onto the stretcher. You know, the, not the stretcher, but the, the the board that they put people on, and then lift that onto the to the to the gurney, and then get that into the ambulance. See, that's what that's what medical people do. Their whole point is to try to help you get better. Yes, sir. And the game you asked for was Simon. Playing. The game you were asking for was Simon Says. Yeah. Next time, say that. <laughs> all right. But the reason I'm telling you all about this. Is there's a scripture on the on the screen right now that Jesus, this is Jesus's quote. It says, Jesus said, it's not the healthy people who need a doctor. It's the sick people who need doctors. And when he was talking about that, he was talking to somebody who was fussing at him because Jesus was going to the people who didn't go to church. Jesus was having dinner with the people who didn't go to church and the people that did go to church were, why are you eating with those bad people? Why are you hanging out with those bad people? You shouldn't go with those bad people. And Jesus said, do sick people go to the hospital or do healthy people go to the hospital? And they said, well, sick. He said, that's right. I'm coming to the people who need me. I'm God and I'm going to the people who need me. People who are already write with God, we're already in good relationship. I'm going to the people who need me. It's just like a person when they're sick or where they're hurt and they need help. Jesus comes to them. And that's what he wants us to remember, is that when we see somebody who's acting mean or somebody who's being nasty or somebody who's not being very nice, we should be nice to them and show them the love of Jesus. Because naturally in our heart, we want to go, I don't like you. Stop. You mean. But that's not what Jesus asks us to do. He wants us to go and love them and be friends with them, even when they're not good, even when they're being mean, even when they're being bad, because. It helps them to understand that God still loves them, even though they're being good bad or naughty or unkind. So anyway, I want to pray with you guys, and then you're going to go back with your teacher. And I'm going to ask, please, please, if you could pick up these papers before you leave so that Miss Charlene doesn't get mad at me. Let's pray. Jesus, bless these kids and help them to come to understand what it means to love the unlovable, to bring Christ's love to those who don't really want it or, de- or even deserve it. But help them, Father, to always know that they need to come and show love to the people who are hurting the most. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Ouch. Oh, it's not as bad as Eddie. Good. You guys are good. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I will get this, these band-aids off. This isn't bad at all. Thank you, Evelyn, for bringing these bandages. I'm glad. Thank you. I'm very thankful that they're old and cheap because they didn't hurt coming off. <laughs> all right. Changing gears slightly, but not, not exactly all the way. Last week, we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 9. So I want to go back there just for a little bit. And if you look at chapter 9, verse 2, it says... Come on. I'm going to actually go to verse 1 of chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, who was the son of Abiel, who was the son of Zeror, who was the son of Bekereth, who was the son of Aphia. He was a Benjaminite, and he was a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. And so we, oh, and there was not a man among the people of Israel, more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And we looked last week, if you remember, at the story of Samuel as he was trying to find his father's uh donkeys, and they decided to go and talk to the prophet, to the seer. Saul was looking for his father's donkeys, and they decided to go to the prophet of the uh the seer, whose name was Samuel, and Samuel. Said to him, the donkeys are okay, come to the feast. Remember we talked about all of that. If you go to the last verse of chapter 9, it says, verse 27, as they, which were Saul and his servant and the prophet Samuel, as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to the, (laughs) Samuel said to Saul, go buy some seashells at the seashore. No, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here, you yourself, for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. So today we are going to look at the word that Saul receives from Samuel, and what happens following that. But before we did that, this is the beginning of our look at the king known as Saul. And I wanted to ask you guys already, before we get started, what do you know already about Saul? What have you learned? What have you studied? What th- What do you remember about this man? At first, he does okay, but then he gets an evil spirit. I'm not sure exactly which part. <laughs> I just want to hear what you what's in your heart. Okay. Doesn't Saul Go to meet the. I can't remember what exactly she was called, but some sort of soothsayer? Mm-hmm. He goes to the. What was the person who was known as the Witch of Endor? Yeah, and he wants to uh, ask um, Samuel. Samuel, who was dead at the time, what to do? Mm-hmm. So he, he tries. he he goes basically to a séance. And tries to communicate with Samuel after Samuel's already died because he needs advice from Samuel. So yeah, he, that's he has no confidence. Okay? He has no so, confidence. There, okay. And, and, and that leads to jealousy uh, whenever David is praised for okay. his great deeds. Okay. Um, uh Samuel, I mean um, Saul, um, becomes enraged with jealousy. Okay. So. Exactly. He's really caught up in what people think about him, and he seems to be more caught up with that than he does in right with God. So he's caught up in what people think about him more than what, <laughs> more than what what God his relationship with God is. That what we are hearing? Yeah. Okay. Well, if I were to ask you guys to um, to sum that uh, some who saw Saul was up in one one compare one one statement. And, say, and teach it to children. Would you say that he was a good king or a bad king? Bad. I'm sorry? Bad. A bad king. Anybody else? He was a good king or a bad king? He was a human king. He was a human king. That wasn't the choice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry? The reason I'm asking that is because my whole life, I've always thought of Saul as a bad king. Um, but as I've studied this week, the Lord's kind of given me a a different perspective on this guy. And I wanted to talk with us about him. Um, I asked you what, you know, what you think about Saul. I want to look to see what does the Bible say? Now, obviously, we do not have time this morning to go through everything that the Bible has to say about Saul. But I've picked out a few things. So we're going to we're going to bounce around a little bit. And then we'd come right back to First Samuel chapter 10. First of all, we just read First Samuel chapter nine, verses one and two. Saul was a, a young man at the time that he comes into the story. Young, probably 20s, early 20s. He had to be at least 20 because otherwise he wouldn't be considered old enough to serve in an army or to to be a leader. So he had to be at least 20, but he's considered young. He was identified as being handsome and they didn't say extremely drop dead handsome, but extremely drop dead handsome. Women would stop in the streets and go "Ah," as he walked by. Because this guy was a man's man. And it says he stood literally from his shoulders up. He was taller than any of the people. That means every other man only came to hear on Saul when they were standing side by side. So Saul was this big, brawny, good looking young man that people were drawn to. That people literally would see him and go, wow. Now, go to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 13 and verse 21. The book of Acts, chapter 13 and verse 21. This is, uh, Paul talking. And he said, then they, talking about the children of Israel, the children of Israel asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Okay. Now, Paul is quoted as saying that Saul served as king for 40 years. Scholars will tell us, That was probably a round number and not really exactly 40 years. A lot of scholars think it was closer to 25 years. Some scholars think it might be a little bit more than that, but they don't think it went all the way up to 40. All we can take is what says in the Bible at face value. The problem is the Bible, when you're looking at 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles, it doesn't give dates. So you kind of have to look at timelines. And I looked at timelines this week, and they were all over the place. So there is not an exact timeline that you can look at. The Bible does not clearly delineate. He was born in 1923, and he died in 1987. We don't just don't know. But the best guess... Somewhere between 20 to 40 years is how long King Saul served. Now, if he served for 20 years, that means he only lived to age 40, okay? Remember, he died in office. He died as the king. So if he served 40 years... He only lived to age 60 or maybe a little bit over. Say he was 22 when he was anointed king. That means he lived to be about age 62 or younger. Okay, so he was not an old man by any stretch of the imagination when he when he was serving as king or when he died. Now, if you go to First Chronicles, okay, so I said we're backing back up into the Old Testament, and this is one of the last ones that we're going to jump at, that we're going to be at, and then we're going to go to First Samuel chapter 10. But 1st Chronicles chapter 10, and that goes 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So it's, it's after 1st Samuel before Psalms. 1st Chronicles chapter 10 verses 13 to 14. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord. And also he consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Now, this is what the chronicler wrote. The chronicler was the chronicles were written a long time after Solomon was gone. So Saul, Samuel, Saul, David, and Solomon are all dead by the time the Chronicles are being written. Okay, so they're looking back; they're writing a history book for their people. Um, so, what the Chronicler's position was, and what became scripture, was that Saul died because he did not uh, keep the command of the Lord, because he's consulted a medium, he didn't he didn't trust in God. And then finally and as a result, God allowed him to die. God, it says, put him to death and turn the king over to the son of David. Now, Elsie said something interesting um, when we were talking about who Saul was. And I want to pick up on that a little bit. Did you say he was he was shy or not sure of himself? Had no, had no confidence, that's what you said. Okay. Okay. And then and then I, I think I think Edie, you said something about he had the, the evil spirit from the Lord that that's what the that's the wording in the, in the in the book. It says an evil spirit of the Lord came on him and he he had these fits of anger and, and paranoia and, and insecurity and anxiety to the point where he was even violent at times. Um, and we're not going to look at all of that today. We will be studying all of that as we get into the story. But I want to just get a, a, a glimpse at who he is today. So I want to quote to you a couple of, uh, out of a couple of articles that I've I've read this week. Um, this very first one came from uh, a woman, I uh, missed my, where is it? There it is. Came from a woman named Talia Fellman, and she wrote this paper called An Unexpected Leader, A Psychiatric Analysis of King Saul. So listen to what she had to say. I actually have two quotes from her, but this is the first one. Scholars in the fields of both Judaic studies and medicine have proposed that Saul's behavior matched that of a patient with clinical epilepsy. Paranoia has also been proposed as a possible explanation for Saul's peculiar behavior. A less accepted but Potentially more accurate explanation is bipolar one disorder. So scholars who know Judaism and also who have a background in medicine or psychology have suggested that he su- suffered with some mental health issues. Some people say it was a physical thing. Some people think indeed it was a mental health problem, again, we are not given enough information in the scriptures to make any kind of determination. This is just simply people making their best guess. It's an educated guess, but it's their best guess, because, again, back then, there was no such thing as internal medicine. There was no such thing as a psychoanal- psychoanalysis. All of these things are modern things that came about in the, seven, six, in the 1800s and the 1900s. So thousands of years after Saul's death, we have the sciences that are now looking back trying to go, well, he had bipolar disorder. We don't know. We have no idea. We weren't there. and we did, They didn't give us the words to be able to determine it. But it's an interesting thought to think about. I found another article. This one was written by a man named Michael Anderson. He wrote an article for Providence magazine back in 2020. And this was called King Saul and the evil spirit, personality change and combat trauma. Listen to this one. This one was really interesting. Um, David Grossman, now Michael, whatever his name was, Michael, sorry, Anderson. Michael Anderson, at the beginning of this quote, is quoting another guy from another source. And I had no way of eliminating that, so let me just read it and it'll make sense when we get there. David Grossman, in his work on killing, writes of character disorders. Now he's quoting David Grossman. Character, Character disorders include obsessional traits in which the soldier becomes fixated on certain actions or things. Paranoid trends, accompanied by irascibility, depression, and anxiety, often taking on the tone of threat to his safety. Schizoid trends, leading to hypersensitivity and isolation. Epileptoid character reactions, accompanied by periodic rages. The development of extreme dramatic religiosity And finally, degeneration into a psychotic personality. What has happened to the soldier is an altering of his fundamental personality. Now he goes into his own words. Michael Anderson then says, King Saul's exhibited characteristics strongly suggest combat trauma after the onset of the evil or distressing spirit. His personality changed from being humble And merciful to raging against both David and his son, Jonathan. He had a strong sense of apathy and depression, as was demonstrated by his attempts to find peace of mind through music and his failure to do so resulting in uncontrollable rage or unhinging of the mind. His wide mood swings and drastic changing of mind show a troubled and uncertain psyche. And I'm inserting here. Think about the situation where Paul Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself to go to the bathroom. And David and his men are in the back of the cave. And David sneaks up and cuts off a piece of Saul's cloak. And then Saul is finished going to the bathroom and he leaves. And then David comes to the mouth of the cave and he says, King, I am your servant. I am your, I am loyal to you. Here is part, here's the proof. You were in my power. I could have killed you, but I didn't. And what does Saul say? I'm so sorry. I'm wrong. And he leaves. This man was hunting David down to kill him, had an army with him. And then in a moment, total change of affect and leaves. In tears. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Forgive me. I'm sorry. So his wide range, excuse me, his wide mood swings and drastic changing of mind show a troubled and uncertain psyche. Another indicator of combat trauma: his duels with David and extensive paranoia, even as David repeatedly demonstrated and proved his innocence. Now turn to First Samuel chapter fourteen, verse fifty-two. Yeah, chapter 14, verse 52. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. From the time Saul became king in his early 20s until the time of his death, some 10 or 20 or 40 years later, he had been responsible for the safety of his nation against a warring nation that was greater in strength and had more powerful weapons than they. Think about what's going on in our world today with the Russians fighting against the Ukrainians and the Russians having the greater army and the greater weapons and the Ukrainians scrambling, trying to defend themselves, put yourself in the place of the president of the Ukraine government. That's the same stress. That's the same pressure that Saul found himself under. A man responsible for the nation, the well-being of the nation, under great threat by a, a greater army, and stronger weapons, because if you remember, again, it's we haven't read any of this, but if you go back and read it, you'll see it said that the Israelites had to bring their implements to their farming implements to the Philistines to be sharpened. Because the Philistines guarded that technology, no one but the Philistines were, were had the ability to uh, to be blacksmiths at that time. And so though they could purchase axes and scythes, the, the uh, Israelites could not sharpen or maintain their farm implements. They would have to go back to the smiths in the Philistine villages and towns to have their farm implements sharpened or maintained or repaired because the Philistines guarded that. Well, now equate that with weaponry. So the 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 Israelites had weapons, but they didn't have as sophisticated or strong weapons as the Philistines did, unless they somehow got them during battle and grabbed them up or something. But so Samuel, excuse me, Saul lived for the better part of 40 years under stress and threat against not only himself, but against his nation by an enemy force. So my question to us this morning as we're looking at Saul as who he is as a person, is it possible that King Saul started out as a mild-mannered, gentle soul who indeed experienced post-traumatic stress disorder, but it went undiagnosed because they had no means of diagnosing it back then. So here this man is trying to do the best that he can With what little he has, and he's under such great pain that he has a breakdown, a mental breakdown. And he still can't just stop being king. He has to just press through. Now, let me go back to um, Talia. This is the second quote that I took from hers. Hers was, again, an unexpected leader, a psychiatric analysis of King Saul. King Saul is arguably the most perplexing personality in the book of Samuel. The first king of Israel, and the only king who preceded the Davidic dynasty. Saul faced challenges in his public leadership and in his personal life. In both of these forums, Saul drastically fluctuates between bold, assertive, and courageous and meek and timid and afflicted these conflicting descriptions of Saul suggest that perhaps he was not simply a human with changing moods but that he was a genuine metab- he had a genuine metabolic disorder it is important to keep in mind that Saul like many other personalities in the tanakh in the in the the holy scriptures was an agent of god and route to completing a mission Still, being part of a divinely ordained plan does not dictate that every person in that plan is perfect. In fact, a person's flaws are often an integral part of the role that he is best fit to play. Therefore, Saul's deficiencies do not deem him corrupt, even if they led him to act unfavorably. It is possible, then, To entertain the idea that Saul, a righteous man, was afflicted with some sort of psychiatric illness. Now, having all of that in our minds now, let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10 and look at this guy. Who is this man that is being called out and anointed the very first king of the nation of Israel? Chapter 9, verses 18 to 22. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? And Samuel answered, Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place for today. You shall eat with me, and in the morning I'll let you go, and I'll tell you what's on your mind. As for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite? A Benjamite? Benjaminite? From the least of the tribes of Israel? Is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me like this? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall, gave them a place at the head of those who had ascend- assembled, who were about 30 persons. And then if you remember, they had this big feast. And Saul got to eat the chosen piece of meat. He sat in that place of honor and he was given the best food. And then he went home with Samuel that night, spent the night. And then on the, in the morning, it says, Samuel and he are walking down the road with Saul's servant. And Saul, Samuel says to Saul, tell your servant to go on. I need to talk with you. I'm going to give you the word that God told me about you. So now we're in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of the surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you saying, what shall I do about my son? And then you should go on from there farther and you'll come to the Oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread which you shall accept from their hand. And after that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp and tambourine and flute and lyre before them prophesying. And the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Look at what Saul, Samuel said to Saul, and how detailed these instructions were. Why? I think you build confidence in Saul that it, if this is someone I can trust. Okay, uh, God, God's doing something. Exactly, exactly. See, Samuel is not going to be mentoring Saul through all of this becoming king. They are living in two separate towns. Saul, he literally says, once all of these things happen, just do whatever you find your hand, whatever your hand finds to do, just do it. Walk in confidence. Know that you're the anointed, that the prince, you are named as the prince, even though it hasn't been done officially. Just know. And here's here's some proof. Like 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 Marilee just said, here's proof. And he gave him detailed proof. Detailed proof. And then like I said, at at verse nine, what is it? Verse uh, seven, it says, or maybe it's six. The spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Let me tell you a story out of my own life. Well, before we do that, verse, verse Samuel chapter 10, verse nine. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave Saul another heart and all these signs came to pass that day. Something changed in Saul's heart at that moment from being, who am I that you would say these things to me? To, wow, really? I'm the anointed? I am the one that's going to be the leader? Wow, something changed. When I was, uh, back in 2006, I had been ordained in the church at the district assembly, um, and it was final, my, my, all of my studies were done, all of my training was done, all of the, the years and decades, literally, of preparation was finally done, and in that moment, the general superintendent at the district assembly re- laid his hands on me, and he said, I I anoint you. I don't remember the exact words, but he he laid hands on me and anointed me as an elder in the church of the Nazarene. And then one of the elders who was present that I had asked them to do it, prayed a prayer, blessing over me. And then it was over with. And then we had a party. And then we came home. And then in July, my father-in-law died. And I was actually at team camp because I was the director that year of both the junior high camp for one week. And then the following, then the weekend between, I was hosting the guest speaker who was there for both camps. And then the next week, I was the host, I was the director of the senior high camp. So it was the weekend between the junior high and the senior high camp in 2006 when Renee's father died. So I left camp after the second camp was over with and got everything buttoned up and left. And I flew, came back here, and then I flew from here to Texas to officiate at my father-in-law's funeral. And uh, Renee was already down there. She had gone down when her father got sick. And so we, we met up together and then we were there for about a week and a half or so. Anyway, it was the Saturday afternoon when they were doing the funeral at the church. And I, again, I officiated my very first time ever officiating as an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene. I was scared to death. It was hard because it was my father-in-law and I loved him desperately and I was trying hard to keep it together. <sighs> but when it was all said and done, I was standing in the foyer of the church, I think, or it might have been the fellowship hall, I don't remember. And one of the women who had, who I had known for the better part of 40 years or 30 years came up to me, because I, I've known her since I met Renee. And she came up to me and she said, there's something different about you. I, I can't put my finger on it, but you're different. You're not the same Bob I used to know. And the Holy Spirit, in that moment, whispered to me, It's the ordination, Bob. It's my anointing of you. You are now a minister of the Gospel. You're not just Bob anymore. Because I can tell you, back when I was first learning how to preach and how to do this stuff, I remember distinctly being invited to preach at a church, or even my own home church, And we had chairs up on the platform and the choir was there and the organist and the music and the 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 piano player and the music leader and the pastor. And one by one, these people started leaving the platform. You know, their part was done and they'd go sit down in the pews. And then finally, the pastor said, well, this morning we're going to be blessed by the ministry of, of Bob Sugden. So let's give your full attention to him. And then he would leave the platform. And I was sitting in the chair and I was like. And literally, I would hear these words whispered to me. Who do you think you are? That you should stand behind that sacred desk and try to tell these people, thus says the Lord. Who do you think you are? And that was literally something I had to contend with in the early days of learning to preach. But after I was ordained, after I had hands laid on me and prayed over by the leadership of the denomination... Less than two months later, I'm standing at my father-in-law's funeral. And a woman comes up to me and says, you're not the same. I can't figure out what it is about you, but you're different. And see, that's what I see here in Saul's story. This is a guy who goes, who am I that you would single me out? I'm just... I'm of the smallest tribe of the nation of Israel. My family's the least family in the whole tribe. I ain't much of anything. Oh yeah, I'm pretty. Big deal. Everyone goes, catcalls as I walk down the street. That doesn't help me much with my friends, believe me. I always feel awkward. I always kind of slouch as I'm in a crowd because I stand head and shoulders above everybody. I don't want anybody to look at me. See, this is the mindset of this man who's being told he is the anointed one who will be the king, the very first king of the nation of Israel. And it says in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 9, God gave him a new heart. And I have to see, I have to hear in those words that Saul literally stood erect for the first time in his life with a confidence, not his own, With an understanding that he was somebody. And he was able to walk in that. But then look at chapter 10 verses 14 through 16. He gets home from his excursion looking for the donkeys. And when he gets there, his uncle greets him and says, So where'd you guys go? And the servant says, oh, we went to see the donkeys. And when we saw that they weren't to be found, we went to the prophet Samuel. And Saul's uncle then said, oh, you went to the prophet? Please tell me what the prophet said to you. And Saul looks at his uncle and says, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, He didn't tell him anything. See, his heart had been changed. But his pattern of relationship hadn't. He still saw himself as less than, or at least he didn't have enough confidence yet in who he was to be able to speak it to even a family member. Isn't that interesting? Then look at 20 through 24. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was, Benjamin was taken by Lot. See what they're doing is they're, they're saying all the 12 tribes come forward and they reach into the thing. The tribe of Benjamin has been identified as the family from which the king shall come. And so then all the elders of the family of Benjamin come. And it says, And the uh, he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by clans. And the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. So all the Matrites stepped forward. And then finally, as they're going man by man through the clan of the Matrites, Saul, the son of Kish, his name was pulled out. This is your new king. But when they looked for him, he couldn't be found. So they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, look for him in the luggage. (laughs) And they ran and they took Saul from there. And when he stood head and shoulders taller than any of the people, And then Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all of the people. And all of the people shouted, Long live the king! Long live the king! Can you imagine this timid, insecure, albeit anointed and slightly changed in his heart person, having to receive all of this attention, the man who normally slinks through a crowd so he's trying not to be noticed, now is the very focus of the entire nation of Israel and all of them are, are screaming, long live the king, we finally have a king, long live the king. Look at 25 through 27 now in chapter 10. Then Samuel the prophet told the people the rights and the duties of the king. And Samuel wrote this in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Now, I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to, I don't have the reference because it wasn't originally in my notes, but I remember and I wanted to give it to you. In the book of Deuteronomy You'll have to look it up. I don't remember what the reference is. There is an actual passage that says, when you get a king, the king is to take a copy of this law and literally write for himself his own copy. And he is to keep it by him day and night so that he will know how he is to govern. Okay, so the, the, the book of God says when the time comes that you're gonna have a king, your king is supposed to know this law backwards, forwards, inside and out. And the way that happens is he's gotta write it out for himself. And then keep it by himself so he has a ready reference at all times to know how he should govern by keeping this nation in right relationship with their God. So Samuel does that for Saul. But then it says, he took the book and laid it before the Lord. And then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. And Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. He didn't take the book with him. How is he supposed to know what he's supposed to do? Saul went home. Samuel went home. All the people went home. What's he supposed to do? He's got this group of guys that have come alongside him, men of valor who want to join the king. And he's like, uh... well, go have a beer? <laughs> I don't know what to do. Uh... Should we maybe uh, maybe maybe we could uh, I don't know what should we do You're the king tell us uh, um, I don't know <laughs> Now again timeline we don't know If you go now to to chapter eleven which we're not going to go into this morning um, But if you go to chapter eleven it says then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabez, Gilead, and all the men of Jabez said, Nahash, make a treaty with him. And then Saul finally has a battle that he's supposed to be leading the people of Israel against. But until that time, what does he do? He doesn't know what he's supposed to do, but he's in charge. I can tell you he have been there too. When I was in England, we were at a base that was closing. I was an E7, which means I was mid-level management, but I was one of the one of the top enlisted people in our organization, and the base was closing. And little by little, people were leaving, and people were leaving, and people. And the, the the workforce was getting smaller. And at one point, I was an E seven, and a friend of mine named Ed was an E seven. And I looked at him one day, and I said, you, you, "You do realize that you and I are the top management right now? We are it. There's nobody above us." And he went, "Oh, that's a scary thought." <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, it is." Because when the commander calls and asks a question, he's going to expect us to have an answer. And it was one of those you have to step into the role, whether you feel confident or not. You've got to be the guy because you're the guy. And I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of a situation before, and you know, I, where where you're the one who's responsible, you're the one who has to know, you're supposed to be the leader, and everybody's looking at you, going, hmm, so. So now you're getting a sense of this bad king who was always after David and being mean to David and being being paranoid about David. Well, again, we don't know all of it, but we have a glimpse now and we're going to start studying more and more and more about him. So as we're closing this up, my question for me, me, but also for you is, so what am I supposed to take away from this? Okay, it was real cute, God, pastor, that we went through all of this and you've read those really neat article pieces and, and we've looked at the scriptures, but so what? What am I supposed to take this, take home and do with this? I would say what you're supposed to take home and do with this is first of all pray and say, God, (laughs) do I identify with Saul? Have I lived that where I have Low self-esteem and low confidence and I'm being expected to do. And I really don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And I have nobody guiding me and nobody teaching me, just expecting me to know. Have you ever found yourself in that situation? Are you currently in that situation? How do you get past that? And I would tell you, don't contact a medium and ask for your dead cousin to give you a word from beyond the grave. I would tell you to go before God. And ask him to bring mentors into your life and to help you to come into whatever it is that God needs from you. But at the same time, I would encourage you, if you're in that situation, I would encourage you to begin to build up your own arsenal. Whatever you're lacking, start looking for resources. If you don't know, ask questions. There is no shame in asking questions. The shame comes in when you're trying to lie about what you know. That's what I would say to you. Now, if you're not in that situation, say you've never been in that situation or you're not in that situation today, there are probably people in your life who are. And they're trying to fake it just as much as Saul was. And maybe you could be that godly person that comes alongside that faker and says, hey, hey, Can I help you walk through this? Let me tell you one other story out of my past. This was not my personal one, but this is a friend. I thought it was the greatest thing she'd ever done. I In the Air Force, back in the 1990s, they did an incredible drawdown of personnel. Okay, we were... I I don't know what the exact numbers were, but say there was a million people in the Air Force and they brought it down to 500,000. Okay, that means literally everybody had to do more with less. Okay. One of the things that happened in my case was, and that's what happened to me when I was in England, I was in this career field that was part of personnel, but separate from all of the rest of personnel. So I had my own rules, my own understanding of my job, but then because of this drawdown in the military, they said, no longer will this be a separate job code, it will be part of this job code. And overnight, I was now responsible for knowing this stuff even though I had never been trained in this stuff, okay? The same thing happened throughout the Air Force, not just in the personnel world, but everywhere. And I had a friend who worked in the contracting office, okay? It was her job to deal with contracts. Well, contracts historically had always been half and half. These people did this, these people did that. Never was there a crossover. These people did this, these people did that. She comes into a brand new office as the change is taking place, and she's the new boss. So here she is, a woman who has always only worked on this half of the job, but overnight she's supposed to know all of it, and she's the boss. And I asked her, well, how did you get through that? And she said, oh... It was a stroke of genius. I said, what'd you do? She said, my very first staff meeting, I told all of those people that I was going to put them to the test. Their job over the course of the next month was to put together a presentation to me that they knew their job and they were to show me every piece of paper every regulation, every form letter that they used in their job and prove that they knew what they were talking about. And so over the course of a month, I got a crash course in the other side. (laughs) They never had a clue that I didn't know what I was talking about. And I was like, that's pretty smart. But it comes from not being afraid. It comes from trying to think outside the box, comes from trying to find the resources that you need. And so what I would say is, if you have never been in that role, but you maybe know somebody who's in that role right now, maybe you could be that godly person to come alongside them and say, listen, I know you got a tough row right now in front of you that you're trying to hoe, and is there some way that I can come along and help you? Anything that I can do. Give them a safe place just to... Because... Isn't that what Christ would do? And that goes back to what I said this morning with the kids. The sick are not the ones that need the doctor. Excuse me, the the healthy ones are not the ones that need the doctor. It's the ones that are sick. The ones that are weak need someone to come alongside to make them strong. The ones that are fearful need somebody to come alongside them and help them to get through and to bolster up their courage and their, their, their encouragement. And the challenge is, is if you have no one, you end up faking it. And you feel like a fraud and you feel less than. And that's not the way God wants us to live. That's not the way God wants us to live. And so don't, just don't first ask God and second, reach out. And again, or be the one reaching out to help the person. I think I've said all that I needed to say. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this real quick glimpse into Saul's life and I ask over the coming days as we are studying more and more about his unfortunate downfall, where he goes deeper and deeper into these um, this mental health problem or this demonic problem, whatever it turned out to be. Father, help us to gain insight into our own lives and our own walk with you and be able to uh, understand how to better live this Christian life. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. Come on up, Mr. Davies.